Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to episode 61 of District of Conservation. For today's episode, we speak with Buck Robinson of Outdoor Access, where he serves as Chief Marketing Officer and Co-Founder. Outdoor Access is dedicated to unlocking the outdoors by making private land more accessible and affordable for all outdoor enthusiasts. They work with private landowners to make their properties available through their platform on a per-day basis. It has taken the outdoor industry by storm in terms of the way it's creatively disrupting how people book properties and access land that they never thought they would be able to access, especially in states like Virginia, here across the eastern seaboard, and in recent states like Texas. You're going to learn more about his background, what the company is doing, and why you should give them a try. Here's our conversation with Buck Robinson. Thank you for joining the podcast, Buck. Really excited to chat with you and what's happening with Outdoor Access. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for having me, Gabby. Of course, anytime. Could you share with the listeners how exactly you got roped into the outdoor industry? What was the impetus behind it, and were you always working in the outdoor industry before you launched and co-founded Outdoor Access? No, I was very much, uh, in, uh, for the last 30-some-odd years, have been involved in marketing and advertising, and the outdoors were just a personal passion, not a not a uh, uh, vocation whatsoever, uh, but I'd always, you know, I'd always kind of been at that point in my career too, where I said, I want to, you know, I don't know how many more times I'm going to go out there and start new businesses, but if I'm going to start one, I want to start one that it's about something that I'm very passionate about. And so uh, when when this concept came uh, across my desk, I said, you know, listen, this is definitely something that I could feel very passionately towards. Plus, I think bring a lot to the table in terms of my professional acumen. So it was uh, kind of the, you know. Perfect timing, perfect uh, opportunity, and uh, I jumped right at in both feet. Could you go through the genesis of Outdoor Access and how it got started, uh, kind of the structure you guys have, and and uh, talk about the creative disruption your company employs? Because it is kind of taking the outdoor industry by storm in many good ways. I think you guys have mostly had positive reception to your efforts, but talk about it and why people are excited about Outdoor Access. Yeah, so when we started, we started on a very small scale, um, and uh, a couple of us as co-founders were both very seasoned entrepreneurs, so we kind of weren't coming into this as, you know, uh, know, dewy-haired kind of uh, uh, 20-something-year-olds. These were both both in our our 40s, let's put it that way, and uh, we're coming in with an experience level that said, hey, we got to be able to test this thing to make sure that it's... Uh, as good as we think it is, and certainly hope that it is, but let's let's validate that first with the market. When we started, um, the 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 model is a lot different than it is today, and that's kind of par for the. And what we started it around is kind of the the catalyst for testing out the 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 general market perception it was around these fringe cat these fringe seasons that we have here in Virginia called urban archery. Now, as the name implies, urban archery is predominantly centered around counties where there's a high 
density of people and gear, and they're coming into conflict. So there's a lot of property damage, a lot of vehicle accidents, things of that nature. So the Department of Game and Inland Fisheries has created this season that's the entire month of September, as well as January, February, March, and in some cases, April, to really try and create deer control and to have that done by hunters who are going to utilize the deer. All right. So there's a very clear problem solution. So you have these these suburban homes who uh, have some some land around them, but the deer are really taking refuge in these kind of insulated suburban areas, doing a lot of damage to the property and and ending up getting hit, the only predators really being toy, Toyotas and Fords. So from that perspective, we saw a great opportunity to just kind of see how the market would respond to this idea of connecting supply, in this case, these suburban uh, land plots with demand, in, in that case being hunters that want to be able to get access to these properties in order to be able to harvest the deer and have landowners that want the people to come on, but want to know that the people who are coming on have been vetted and that if there was ever an issue associated with it, uh, that they wouldn't be held liable. So they have an uh, indemnification as far as that's concerned. So we created the kind of the rudimentary model just around that problem solution. And it has since evolved into, we're now in about 13 or 14 states. Um, our average property size is about 150 acres, not three acres. And it has obviously expanded well beyond the initial uh, urban archery and now involves all forms of hunting, fishing, camping, drone flying, any kind of outdoor recreational activity that a private landowner might be willing to allow on his or her property. And we facilitate that landowner, in our case, in our parlance, the supply, Connecting with the demand, whether that's a hunter, a fisherman, a drone flyer, horseback rider, doesn't matter, but one of our members, and doing so in a way that makes everybody feel good about creating what we call the handshake. So in much the same way that back in, in the day, you know, 50 years ago, and we hear this all the time, people used to just be able to walk up and knock on a door and ask the landowner if they could gain access to the property, and typically... Yeah, the landowner would say, yes, maybe there would be some barter or exchange of services like uh, the, the hunter would help uh, stack wood or do something like that. But it was a very, it was a non-economic type of transaction. Well, lots have changed over the years. And obviously, one of the sig most significant things is liability. So you have a landowner who may very much be willing to allow somebody to come onto his or her property, but they're scared that if something was to happen, they would be at risk of losing their property because they might get sued. So we immediately address that by providing and creating a unique insurance program that protected both our members and the landowner during the course of that transaction, uh, as well as putting all of the members through a criminal background check to answer and address that concern the landowner might have of, how do I know that these are people I want to have on my property? Um, so being able to make sure that that landowner has the peace of mind of knowing, hey, these people have been vetted. Uh, they're not going to be out there if you don't want them to be out there. So you can control the means of access, the, 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 the cadence of access. You can set the rules. You can do all of those things. And that's, and that's really where um, the, the seed of outdoor access has taken root and really, really grown. I mean, we have 600 properties. We have almost 4,000 members. Uh, and that's in about three years' worth of time. So it's grown 
tremendously over the last three seasons. Yeah, it really has. And I think uh, when we worked together, when you guys were launching and my dad and I started in a few of the ads and people just started to get to know you guys more through my social channels, people said, well, can you guys expand to different states? And it's amazing you guys have started to go into those states uh, since that time. So you guys certainly have been growing. And I've seen that a lot of people have been paying attention in the industry. So it's really good. And even here in Virginia, uh, just all the dailies and the newspapers are starting to profile your efforts more and uh, who your venture capitalists are and just the increased valuation of outdoor access. So it's really exciting that you guys are on the cutting edge and no one really has been able to compete with you. Would you say that? That there's well, no really other com- company? Yeah, I think that, I think that the, 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 the big thing that we've recognized is that um, we've had a lot of what I would call very flattering imitators. Uh, and they never really got any traction. And the reason they never got any traction is that it, this isn't a matter of building a website and and then the market just finds you. That, and I think there's that's kind of this notion of, well, it's not that hard to create a web-facilitated two-sided marketplace. And and that's I, that may or may not be true, depending on how you define hard. But what is very difficult and that is a unique challenge that we've faced that has not been the situation with the Ubers and the Airbnbs of the world. In the Ubers and the Airbnbs of the world, both the supply and the demand has a common comfort and a confidence level in interacting with the technology. So the app or the website, whatever you may use, is something that both the, the homeowner in the case of Airbnb or the, or the, you know, the leaser and the renter both have comfort in interacting with. In our case, most of our supply not only doesn't feel comfortable interacting with that technology, they may not even own a computer. So when you say, well, I can email you, son, I don't have an email address. So I mean, mm-hmm. like that's a huge barrier, especially to somebody who is really kind of looking at this as a technology solution to realize how do I interact with half of my half of my equation, and arguably the most important half, when technology isn't going to be a facilitator, it's actually going to be an impediment. So that is something that I think has created a kind of a great wall that's prevented a lot of fast followers. But the other thing that has been kind of uh, instrumental, I think, to to us not committing suicide as as a startup has really been our discipline. And you mentioned about going into other states. Listen, we have demand from all 50 states and other countries. So, like, it's not a matter of whether we think there's a there there as far as going into other other markets. It is absolutely essential, however, that we have the balance or equilibrium between the supply and the demand, because that has also been what has killed similar types of business models before, is they just go too far, too fast, too wide, if you will, and they have a good idea, and they may even have a good platform for it, but they've spread it so thin that the supply and the demand can't connect. And that's where we have really been very disciplined, um, mostly by looking at what competitors have done wrong and saying, no, we're going to go in these kind of baby steps. Now, we're getting more aggressive as we're getting more confident in, in really making sure that all of that the differences between a Pennsylvania and a Virginia and a South Carolina 
really aren't that material, but uh, we have taken this and grown it in measured doses, measured dosage doses strategically, um, not because of lack of kind of confidence that there's a, a need for it. We know the need is there. It's on both sides of the equation. And that has no uh, unique geographic uh, distribution. It is really something that is necessary everywhere. It might be a little different out west because there's a lot more public land out there. But we are very confident that everything east of the uh, Mississippi, and we know that there's a huge demand for this. And, and, it, and really, it's the kind of thing that, you know, when you look at the entire hunting industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, which is why I always laugh when people say, you know, we're in the we're trying to commercialize hunting. I'm like, if you haven't noticed, there's a multi-billion dollar commercial industry associated with hunting already. So uh, we're late to that game. <laughs> we didn't change that. That was already there before we got here. But the uh, but the thing is that you know the number one reason why people stop hunting is because of lack or loss of access to land, and that is something that is it threatens the integrity of the entire industry. And that's something that we feel like we're not just putting a Band-Aid on. We're coming in and attacking the core problem, which is not lack of interest. It's lack of two things, access and time. And by being able, being able to provide better access, it's more conveniently located so that it takes less time out of everybody's busy schedule to be able to go out and enjoy hunting. I mean, one of the beauties of our model is instead of saying, well, yeah, I've got a place I can hunt that's three hours from here and I go out there you know, a couple times a season because that's all I can afford to do from a time perspective. Hey, if I can get you into a tree 10 minutes from your house, you can go and hunt in the morning. I do this all the time. Hunt in the morning and still make it to the office by the time everybody else is showing up or make it to my kid's soccer game on a Saturday afternoon. So hunting doesn't have to be something that takes away from my schedule or that my schedule has to rearrange to accommodate We've made it so convenient that hunting is something that people can just say, hey, I can hunt and do all the rest of the stuff that my busy life requires, and I don't have to ask for a sacrifice. That is true. I've noticed it especially with the offerings you guys have had in urban areas or close to urban areas and just all the boundless offerings in uh, states that are more prone to having uh, private land opportunities uh, could you talk a little bit about the public versus private land divide and how a model like yours, uh, you'd mentioned out west, it may be a little more complicated because there are larger tracts of public land, and that's kind of the preferred type of hunting and even fishing some people do. But I, I feel like out east in this side of the country, it's a little easier um, when they have tools like outdoor access to navigate private land. Do you guys want to kind of facilitate more access, especially in line with uh, trying to fix declining hunting numbers? Uh, to, to ensure that more so, people access private land? So one thing I'll just say that uh, off the, the very beginning is that we are very blessed in this country to have the amount of public land that we have. Yes. And we uh, love that. And we love that people take advantage of that. And we hope that they will. And I hope that when I say take advantage, I say it not in a negative way, but in a positive way that they're getting themselves outdoors, they're enjoying those properties and that they're really caring for those properties and continuing to see the need for those properties. So that's a wonderful, wonderful resource that we have and we're blessed to have. But, but I think the most telling case here is that people tend to like to think in terms of this binary, it's one or the other. 
And it's not. It's, an, it's not an either or. It's an and. And a perfect example is we went into two markets this year, Texas and Pennsylvania. Okay, arguably the two most important hunting states in, the, in at least the lower 48 states, all right? There are, Texas is the number one, and I think Pennsylvania may be number two in terms of total number of licensed hunters. Mm-hmm. But you could not have more difference in terms of that whole public-private conversation because Texas has, you know, probably on a per-acre uh, per basis, the least amount of public land available, and Pennsylvania, very proudly, has the most. And I think that's wonderful. But our model works in both, all right? Our model works in both. And in fact, it's more difficult for us, it has been more difficult for us to break into a market like Texas because private landowners know that they are the are essentially the only game in town and they have a real keen sense of what their land and access to it is worth. So they want to be able to continually push the, the economics up. And we're very clear that hey, you know, we're we're a marketplace, and and the economics are the you know the the price is going to fall where the demand sees the value. So in a Pennsylvania where there's a ton of public options, we continually hear the same thing, which is yeah, there's tons of public land, but there's so many guys out there that I don't feel safe, and I want to be able to go to a safe private piece of property where I don't have to worry that I get out there before sunlight. And then some Yahoo comes walking through my setup and ruins the entire hunting experience. Or some guy takes a pot shot and and I'm in the, you know, feel like I'm, you know, ducking for cover. So we've been very clear to be able to say public land is awesome, but it's not for everybody. It's not the experience that everybody's looking for. But on the flip side of that, and where I think we actually are more disruptive, isn't in taking people who would otherwise be looking for free or public access away. I think where we've actually been more disruptive is against the other side of the spectrum, which is the high-end outfitter type experience, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people will say, you know, hey, listen, uh, and and we're very clear. Ours is the Home Depot of of private land hunting. You know, like no one's showing you around out there. No one's making you lunch. Nobody, you shoot something, guess who's cutting it? You are, Not, not me. Um, you know, so this is do it yourself, but, but it's also priced accordingly. So it's not something that only the one or 2% of hunters that can afford to go out and spend hundreds or thousands of dollars a day would, would be looking at. We, we are offering something that the market didn't have before, which is that access to private land without the high price tag that an outfitter might otherwise charge. Granted. Totally different in terms of what you're getting. It's still do it yourself. You got to go out there and you got to make the make the shot and find the game and do it all yourself. But we're also not charging an arm and leg, so that we've made it so that the every man, and that's really been continuing to be our the customer that we have in mind is that dad or grandfather who wants to take his kids out and teach them about hunting, that active duty service member who wants to be able to get out and hunt on the limited amount of free time that he has uh, to be able to find access to a property that's near the base and that he can get out and hunt and enjoy himself while he's stationed in Virginia or North Carolina or Texas, wherever it may be. 
or that person who's a first-time hunter who says, hey, I don't know if I want to join a club. I don't even know what I'm doing, but I know that if I go out on public land, I'm probably wasting my time and maybe even putting you know others at risk because I'm inexperienced. I really want to be able to go and have a safe experience where I can get to know the property and know that I'm going to be in a situation where I'm the only person out there. And that's a positive, not a negative. So that's where we've really tried to create a new a new category that is making hunting more attractive and accessible to the more cost-sensitive side of the market in order to be able to have that marketplace not say, well, you know what, it's so difficult to find what I'm looking for, I'm just not going to do it. And that's actually what has hurt hunting so badly and, and hurting that recruitment and retention is, as I said, about, you know, you see it in not just one or two uh, surveys, but multiple surveys, where people will say, as high as 70% of hunters say, I stopped because I lost the access to the property that I had, and it was so difficult for me to find another alternative that I just gave up. And now, that never has to be the case, because with outdoor access, even though you may ultimately be looking for a piece of property that you have an annual lease on or exclusive access to, in the interim, you can get exclusive access on a fractional basis through our model. Yeah, I, I've noticed, uh, uh, yeah, you make very good points about this because uh, the, the common refrain is that hunting is a very expensive kind of luxurious sport and it prices people out of it and deters them from accessing it. I think I had those reservations before I started a few years ago thinking like, I have to spend all this money and when I've utilized properties like yours that are offered through outdoor access, I certainly have seen uh, that it is possible to to access certain untapped properties and see things there. And hopefully we'll get to see uh, from the hunting angle uh, if next week, hopefully, uh, if we're successful uh, yep. with deer hunting there. Uh, but I wanted to ask you also about uh, are there going to be expansions of the types of properties listed? Because obviously it's the hunting properties are wonderful, but I think I had asked you once uh, if like trout properties, if, if people are willing to open up their properties with trout stockings um, up to outdoor access or any kind of unique uh, fisheries or different type of hunting grounds that may border like national wildlife refuges. Have people um, in those unique circumstances approached you guys to possibly list their properties too? Yeah, and and it's one of those things that like anything, once there's kind of a, you reach a critical mass and there's the you know enough folks looking and seeing wow uh lots of other properties like mine are are on here and we can be able to show them not just the you know the salesmanship but the actual empirical data of how much properties like theirs stand to make and for a lot of landowners don't get me wrong they may not ultimately be looking at this as a means of retiring but this is something that can be a very meaningful source of revenue from something that otherwise is not generating any revenue for them. Um, and we can really be able to show them how they can turn it into a very viable asset beyond just its timber value or its ag value or what have you. And the nice part about our program is, again, we say this time to time, it's your land. So if you, the landowner, say, I want to use my property, this is why I bought it, or this is why I love it, Use it however you want. That's fine. This isn't a situation, again, going back to that either-or type mentality, where if you're leasing it, now you can't use it. Quite the contrary. We're like, no, use it when you want to use it. But when you're not using it, allow our members to be able to help you pay for that 
and and you can have the best of both worlds. You're not having this be a drain economically. It can be a situation where we can show them in the first year how we can cover their tax bill, and in year two, with any kind of modest investment in you know improvements, whether that's bush hogging or putting up a couple of tree stands or putting in a couple of food plots or whatever, that they can really be able to start to turn a profit. And so that's the the fun thing for us is that we've taken these landowners, whom again I said a lot, allow them to be able to really become entrepreneurs. In much the same way that you go on an Uber driver and that Uber driver uh, has, has made improvements to his car or has all sorts of snacks and things like that because he knows that's going to get him a better rating. And, you know, he's treating it like he's a businessman. A lot of our landowners, albeit 75-plus-year-olds, mm-hmm. are looking at this and saying, hey, this is something that I can really be able to turn into a meaningful source of additional revenue. So that's good. But we also are also cognizant about saying, okay, but we still want this to be something that's affordable to the every person. So it's to this day, even though we now have you know six hundred odd properties in our system, our average rate is still around twenty five to thirty dollars per person per day. Kids are always free because we really want this to be a platform that people can use to introduce kids to the woods and to those outdoor skills. And yes, are we going to have more trial properties? Yes. We, we started with none. We've now got about 15 on the, on the program. And I'm sure that as we continue to expand into areas where um, we have uh, better uh, options there, we will add more. The challenge has been this, and this is one of the things that's really interesting for a lot of people because they look at it and from the perspective, and I think it's, a, it's kind of a simplistic way of looking at it, that all acres are created equal. And they're not. I, and, and that's quite simply not the way we look at things. I don't look at, when I say I'm going into a market, I don't look at, let's just take, for example, Virginia. I don't look at Virginia and say, the entirety of Virginia is my market. I really look at it in terms of the I-95 and the I-64 corridor, and where I know 90% of my members are going to come from are going to come from Northern Virginia, Richmond, and Norfolk. Um, Will I get some out of Roanoke? Yes. But it's all, almost entirely the demand is coming from urban areas. And mm-hmm. those urban areas, coming back to that idea of convenience, want properties that are within an hour drive. So when I'm looking at, if somebody said to me, I have 1,000 acres in Wise County, which is in kind of rural southwestern Virginia, or somebody said to me, I have 10 acres in Loudoun County, I'll take the 10 acres in Loudoun County every day of the week. Because even though that 1,000 acres in Wise might be absolutely magnificent, my members aren't going to drive four hours to go there. They'd rather drive 30 minutes to be able to go hunt that 10-acre property in Loudoun. So it kind of comes back to that same thing about trout properties. A lot of trout properties are located up in the mountains, kind of a long drive away from urban areas. So you may have some members who are willing to go to that time and trouble to get access to that property. But I'm going to do a lot more business with that farm pond that offers bass 10 minutes from your house, you know. But, but that guy who's fishing that, that pond for bass may only be willing to pay $10 a day, whereas the trout fisherman may be willing to pay 50 So it's really been an interesting uh, experiment in seeing the pure kind of Keynesian economics of supply and demand here at work. 
and really being able to allow landowners who may think, hey, access to my property is worth $100 a day. And then all of a sudden they're wondering why they're not getting any, any reservations. And we're saying, hey, because you're comparably speaking, these, you know, our, our members aren't stupid. They can look on our website and see other properties and be able to see, I can get access to a property that's closer, that offers basically the same options for a third of the price. Why should I pay the 100 So it allows that landowner to make a choice. If they say, well, I'm not willing to charge less than $100, well, okay, then don't be surprised when you don't get any reservations. And in a lot of cases, they may lower that, that access rate and all of a sudden make it up in the volume of getting three or four or five times more, more reservations. So we advise them on that. But like that, like I said, we are a marketplace, so they can always make that decision for themselves. And the marketplace will decide. That's good you guys offer them that flexibility. I think it creates less tension and it works in a win-win situation. Uh, yeah. I think so. And, and it's so unique because so many people are looking for innovative ways to fix problems, especially through the private sector. And I think more people find that across different issues, whether it's like energy or outdoor recreation, people are wanting to find new and unique ways to overcome certain challenges and still make it profitable for people if they're in the business of churning a profit, of course, um, from yeah. there. And you, you can have that, and then you can have also safe access as well. Uh, but uh, going forward, uh, do you guys have big plans for 2020 uh, lined up? Obviously, no secrets. You don't have to detail any secrets, but anything interesting that uh, listeners can look out for, um, get excited about, maybe uh, learn more through joining, things of that sort. So do you guys have any big plans for 2020? Yes, we do, in fact. So if you kind of look at it on a growth curve, in our first full year, we were exclusively in Virginia. In our second year, we were in Virginia and North Carolina. In our third year, now we are, we are in Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Texas. So you can kind of see how it's snowballing here. In 2020, our intention is to be the entire eastern seaboard. Um, now, that may not go all the way up to Maine. It'll probably be more like from like New York State down to Florida. Um, mm -hmm. And then as far uh, west as uh, Georgia, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, reaching into Illinois and Ohio. So we are continuing to add um, an exponential level of growth, uh, but at the same time recognizing that it's not a okay, you know, take your hands off the off the steering wheel. Let's just let this thing fly and go wherever. It's still very structured in our ability to be able to make sure that the execution and that the equilibrium of supply and demand is always there. We've just gotten more. Uh, one, we've raised more resources to be able to grow um, more aggressively. But two, we've also just got more confidence and kind of our modus operandi of being able to execute on, on getting the supply into the system, getting the demand aware and building that brand awareness in each of these markets, and then being able to get enough commerce generated between them to be able to make the whole wheel turn. So 2020 will actually be our, our year of turning as a company profitable, which we're very excited about. Um, because it then kind of goes to the, the marketplace and says, hey, this isn't just a neat concept that can't stand on its own economically. This is a, this is a business model that can show profitability and that ultimately 
uh, can be a standalone and is not perpetually needing to be propped up by more venture capital. That's very encouraging because I think I read that most startups, or it's, it's kind of common knowledge that most startups do not make it past their first year or even, um, even a lot of businesses uh, to extend even that. Uh, most businesses don't make it after a few years of just starting or they fail within their first year of launching. And especially for startups, it's really important to, to turn a profit. So that's really good that you guys are laying the groundwork for that and seeing those successes. Yeah, trust uh, me, there's been there's been a few potholes along the way. Of but. course, like anything, that yeah, business should be like that because if everything was honky dory, you're not you're not going to appreciate the earnings that you're going to be making. Uh, so the challenges kind of make you stronger and hopefully uh, make your business have more longevity. I think if you learn from mistakes, I've seen this in my own consulting business. I've learned a lot in, in the three years that I've been doing it. Like I've seen finally value coming out of it and fewer roadblocks and, and bumps. So I think it's only natural for all of us, <laughs> regardless of our age or experience levels, if we're going into business to see that. Yep. And to, and I to think have our main problems. thing has been, you know, again, to, to recognize that the, the learning process involves trial and error and that if you're going to fail, which you inevitably are, there's, there's no Pollyanna like, or everything we do is going to work. You, you know going into it that a large percentage of what you do isn't going to work. It's to not make those kind of all-in bets that, well, we're so confident this is going to work. We're just going to, we're just going to, we're not going to test it. We're just going to go with it. And those are the critical mistakes that a lot of startups make. And we've been very wise about saying, as confident as we are, we're still going to go out and test it and make sure and validate that before we really, so that if we fail, we fail small and we fail fast. And it doesn't disrupt the integrity of the entire model. It just is, okay, well, that was an experiment. It didn't work. Move on. It's not these big bets that a lot of companies make based off of a limited amount of data that allows them to be able to draw these um, inaccurate conclusions that ultimately, you know, in hindsight, they look back and go, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. We, we've been very careful about not having too many uh, that's, yeah, we shouldn't have done that because the company's now gone under as a result. Those are good takeaways. Where can people join and how can they follow you guys on social media? So we're pretty ubiquitous as far as that's concerned. So uh, on all of the major social media platforms, uh, of course, the website is outdooraccess.com. Um, we are also Outdoor Access on Instagram. We are Outdoor Access Inc. on Facebook. Um, we also have a members-only Facebook group, which has become a nice resource for a lot of our members to utilize. Um, we are on Twitter at Outdoor Access as well. So, uh, you know, lots of different ways to interact with us. Um, it's, it's interesting because as technophobic as our supply side of the equation is, our member side is very uh, techno-comfortable, and so they use a lot of our uh, social media as a means of engagement. Um, we have taken down our apps, so I would say if you go look for us in either the Apple or Google app stores, uh, we are not there presently. We have taken those down because they are being repaired and under construction. But if you go to Outdoor Access, either on a mobile or a laptop slash desktop, uh, either way, we have a the, the website is fully functional and up to speed with all of our latest properties. Excellent. Uh, any final parting thoughts for the listeners and, and a pitch as to why 
should you not access if they haven't already? I think the main thing is that, you know, listen, we live in a, in a crazy, hectic, techno-smoggy world, right? And, and there is something incredibly therapeutic, incredibly rejuvenating about getting away from the man-made world, even if it's just for a morning, and being able to, you know, I hate to sound crunchy here, but commune with <laughs> nature. And, and it really is something that I think most people have forgotten because their lives have become so, uh, in, you know, in, embroiled in the day-to-day world of their, you know, their kind of urban existence that they don't realize how good it is to just get away and, and get away from the noise and really be able to disconnect. And outdoor access makes it easy for you to do that economically Outdoor access makes that easy for you to do that logistically. And the more you do it, the more you're going to realize what you've been missing. And so I would strongly recommend whether you want to shoot a deer with a camera or shoot a deer with a shotgun, I don't care. Just get out there and see those deer and utilize us as a means of giving you options to always be able to do that in a way that works for your budget and works for your time, your, your lifestyle. Those are awesome words. It is important to get out in nature because of, like you said, all these technological distractions and because it is hunting season and fishing season. So why not? (laughs) That's right. Take advantage of it. Awesome. It's 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 an awesome way of getting out and also very tasty if you're successful. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yes. And I hope uh, when we go out to the field on the 13th, uh, I can hopefully bag my first deer, but I look forward to to being under your guidance then and uh, to many more adventures. But you guys have been wonderful with uh for working and you've been so accommodating whenever i do all these uh interview requests so i appreciate you coming on my podcast too to talk about what you guys are up to it's always a pleasure and i really truly appreciate everything that you've done to help us spread the word and spread the gospel of outdoor access so thank you very much absolutely make sure to subscribe to the podcast on apple spotify google play and other participating platforms you can follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or guest announcements. Make sure to subscribe, download past episodes, and leave us a review on your preferred platforms, especially on Apple. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.